0: The weeks leading up to Christmas can be a period of rather tedious waiting, especially for children. As a child growing up in Oklahoma, my interest at Christmas was directed pretty much primarily towards Christmas presents. Sometime around mid-November, I would begin to collect Christmas gift catalogs. We didn't have an Eaton's catalog in Oklahoma, but I suspect most of you grew up with the Eaton's catalog doing the same thing I did. I would go through page by page and uh, look at different things that I wanted. This is a particularly fine specimen of a 1940s Eaton's catalog, I think. No helmet. Have to love it. I went through those catalogs cover to cover, probably several times a day, coveting gifts on each page. I would, I would say, okay, which is the best gift on this page? Which gift do I want? Uh, who can fault a child for dreaming? Of course, most of the toys that I wanted never made it to the Botkin tree. And I was smart enough to know in advance that they weren't going to make it to the Botkin tree. However, the enthusiastic fires of wishful thinking were not quite extinguished. So like most children, I could hardly wait for Christmas morning, my mind filled with hopeful expectation. Now, as we all know, long waits are difficult. The hours, the days, the weeks Just slowly drag on, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to speed it up. Waiting can be hard. A small child may wonder, Will Christmas ever come? Hurry, Christmas, hurry fast. Air Miles to whoever tells me what hymn that is from. It's a song by the chipmunks. (laughs) Did you get that, Philip? Oh, all right, Air Miles in Philip's account. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, and it's also the first Sunday in the church year, the church calendar year. There are four Sundays in Advent, and they serve as a time of preparation and celebration. As you heard at the beginning of the service, Advent means coming. It is traditionally a season of waiting with anticipation, a bit like children waiting to open presents. But we are in Advent waiting for Jesus. Advent reminds us annually that Christians are people who are watching for the coming, or Advent, of Jesus Christ. Why, you might ask, do we have a season called Advent that is separate from Christmas? Well, Advent has its own necessary focus. In Advent, we take time to consider the coming of Jesus in three different dimensions of time. Christ came, born in the village of Bethlehem, Past. Christ comes to us when we open our hearts to him and consciously move in his direction as we're doing in this time of worship this morning. Christ comes to us in the present. Christ will come again, as we see mentioned throughout the New Testament. Bernard of Clairvaux said in an Advent sermon roughly 900 years ago, Advent prepares us not just for the first coming of Christ to Israel or even the second at the end of time, There is a third coming between these two in which Jesus comes in spirit and in power for our rest and consolation. The primary focus of the four Sundays of Advent is on the first and second comings of the Lord. In the first two weeks of Advent, the scriptures lean towards the facts stated by an angel in Acts chapter 1. Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So that's the focus of the first two weeks of Advent. In the weeks three and four of Advent, the focus begins to shift more towards the event announced by a different angel, this angel in Luke. Don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. So Advent means coming. Now's a good time to state an obvious fact. If someone is coming, someone else is waiting. And often in waiting, time passes slowly, painfully slowly. I'd like you to think about the first advent 2,000 years ago. At youth group this past Friday night, the teens learned that the Christmas story begins with God making a promise, an unbelievably impossible promise, to a man called Abraham. Well, at that time, his name was Abram. We see in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation All the families on earth will be blessed through you That blessing through Abraham We consider to be the coming of Christ The Messiah Now this promise was made nearly a thousand years Before the Israelites actually became a nation Before King David They were just a collection of tribes Who didn't get along together terribly well And David was the first to truly unite them into a nation About 300 years after that The ten northern tribes disappeared into exile in Syria I'm sorry, Assyria And uh, they've been gone since then But about that time, not long after that A prophet named Isaiah Renewed those promises of a coming Messiah But yet those promises weren't fulfilled For another 600 years 2,000 years of waiting It's a long wait before the advent of Jesus The first coming Much, much longer than that If you consider that the very first promise Made about the coming of Christ Was made in the Garden of Eden We can't count how many thousands of years ago that was So Advent is a time of waiting There have been times in history of the church when adult Christians looked forward to the celebration of Christmas simply because it was the best news ever heard. The central preoccupation of the season was the celebration of the Incarnation. Christians would gather together in beautiful surroundings to hear magnificent music that celebrated the birth of Christ, possibly Handel's Messiah. This would be true in New Delhi, as in this picture, where there are strong Indian Christians, or in Montreal, as you see in this photo. But it doesn't just happen in beautiful surroundings. It can happen in humble church buildings or even a church basement for a Christmas pageant with the children dressed up as shepherds and wise men or even assorted animals. And either the purpose of the gathering is to contemplate the wonder of Christ the Lord born in humble circumstances, and to worship him. But for many Christians today, this waiting to celebrate the birth of Jesus has been smothered by other good things. Parties with friends, meals with families, events, concerts. How many concerts do we have this Christmas to go to? One, two... And there's two on next Sunday night that we want to go. To. Philip and Kim probably have a dozen at least. Shopping, travel. We hardly have time for a church service in all of that busyness. That doesn't seem right, does it? Can we somehow return as Christians to the joy of celebrating the incarnation and worshiping Christ, the newborn King? Maybe we can. And maybe the key is, in fact, a proper observance of Advent in which we keep the two Advent perspectives in focus. Now, these are two windows at a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Did you know that there were beautiful churches in Birmingham, Alabama? I didn't, but why would I not think there were? It's an Episcopalian church. The the window on the left is a window depicting the birth of Jesus. It's hard to see, but you see Mary there in the center and you see people around, and that's the birth of Jesus, the first advent. The picture on the right is a picture of the second coming of our Lord, the second advent. What's in the middle? It's their communion table. Their communion table is a little more fancy than our communion table. But it's a communion table in between the two advents. Because what do we do at communion each time we take it? We remember the incarnation. This is my body. This is my blood, the incarnation. And we remember that he's coming again. Jesus said, do this until I come. So even as we take communion, every time we take it, we're looking in two directions, the first advent, the second advent. But during advent, we turn our focus strongly to those two advents the first and the second. Now today our our focus is going to be on the second coming of Christ because that's where our readings take us. In the gospel reading for today, we hear Jesus talking about his second advent in which his reign on earth will be established. He spoke plainly, telling us that the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself most often, the Son of Man will come on the clouds with great power and glory. He went on to say, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven, or the Son himself, only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. He then used a parable to tell about a man who went off on a long trip and left his servants in charge of his household. And he knew that maybe the servants might get slack and might start to goof off, but the job of the servants is simple to keep watch you too must keep watch Jesus said for you don't know when the master of the household will return now there have been times in in our history when Christians were actively watching for the second coming when I was growing up it was a topic that I heard preached on regularly although we never called it the second advent it was always the second coming books were written And devoured by the faithful 39th president of the United States of America James Earl Carter Was quoted in a Boston newspaper As saying this Quoted in April of the year he was elected to be the president We should live our lives As though Christ were coming this afternoon He said that in in March Of the year that he was elected to the office of the president Apparently he was teaching a Bible class somewhere wasn't it a, a political rally. He was teaching a Bible class, and the Boston paper picked it up and published it. We don't hear that said very often in Christian circles these days. 1957, a fellow came to our church in Oklahoma. That's twice i said Oklahoma. Okay, no more. But I mentioned that. Um, and he came... Having done his biblical math, he came to our church and announced with absolute conviction that Jesus Christ was coming back by the end of 1957. We're almost at the end of 2017, so his math was off at least 60 years. Uh, Maybe this sort of preaching is partly to blame for our apparent coolness towards the topic of Jesus' second coming. Or maybe we're just weary with waiting. Waiting is not a pleasant thing for any of us. It's not easy. We quickly tire with waiting. And and how much longer do we have to wait comes to mind. So some of our enthusiasm for Christ's coming has been mired in a bit of ennui or indifference. But Advent annually brings us back to the return of Jesus. Every year the church begins its year by focusing on the second coming of Christ. As it draws us ready to celebrate the first coming. In a church that's faithful to the church calendar, you're going to hear scriptures read that look forward to the return of Jesus. Now today's epistle reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 to 9 page, I think, 870 in your Bible in the pew. It's Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and I'm going to read verses 3 to 9. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on that day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, In all of the epistles that Paul wrote, he follows traditional formalities. Most letters in that day began with four parts. First, they identified the author. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they would identify the recipients to God's church in Corinth. Then there would be a greeting. For Paul, in this letter, it's May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. But it was also traditional in that day to add a fourth element, which would be either a prayer. Or an item of thanksgiving to the particular local gods. Related to the health and well-being of the recipients. How are you feeling? Or may God keep you well. That sort of thing. Now Paul begins his letters with more pointed words of thanksgiving. In this letter Paul says, I thank my God for you. That's really interesting. Because... That congregation was giving Paul a lot of grief. That's why he has to write this letter. A lot of grief. And yet Paul doesn't start by saying, you guys are making my life miserable. I thank my God for you. Paul was thankful for the gracious gifts that had been given to the church. He mentions two. One is logos, word, and the other was knowledge. Knowledge. Now, what's interesting for us today in this first Sunday of Advent is the reason for these gifts being given to the church. I'm not going to get into what the the logos, which means just speech or communication and and knowledge was, because that would take a lot of time. But the reason they were given is very simple, that they would be ready to enable the believers to eagerly wait for the return of the Lord. You have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord. Now, a good writer will generally tell you in the introduction to his book what he's going to tell you. And Paul does the same thing. He tells him right in his thanksgiving what is the most important part of this letter. His desire that they, as a church, be eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord. That's his concern Now actually Paul says Waiting for the revelation of Jesus He uses the same word that we give to the Last book of the Bible, revelation Which means an unveiling But it also means appearance Or coming Now Paul promises the church in Corinth And us as well that God will give us The words to say to each other And the knowledge that we need In order to wait for his coming That's basically all Paul has to say at this point. But what does this waiting look like? What does it look like to eagerly wait for the coming of the Lord? 50, 60 years ago, I I would say from my own experience, that more often than not, it meant searching the Bible to find the signs of the time and then trying to relate the signs of the time to the events of the day. So when I was a child, everybody was trying to figure out who the Antichrist was. When I was first aware of this, it was Abdul Nasser. You remember him? No, you don't. He's long gone And uh, they were also trying to figure out What represents today The ten toes of Daniel's statue And in that For a lot of people became the European Common Market That was the ten toes But of course then After a while there weren't ten So that kind of messed things up Those were great debates But they were a bit misguided We heard Jesus say in the gospel No one knows the time Of the coming of the Son of Man. Only, not the angels, not even the Son, only the Father in Heaven knows that time. So those were misguided conversations, probably. What we need to be attentive to as we wait for the coming of Christ is to focus on the work that God wants to do in us as we wait. We wait, and as we wait, God does something in us. And Paul tells us exactly what that work is. God... Wants to make us blameless. Now it's an interesting word that Paul uses here. He really just takes two words and puts them together the word not and the word called to account. Not called to account. It, It essentially means not having a finger of guilt pointed in our direction. Not having a finger of guilt. You can hardly listen to the news these days. I don't think you need. I don't know if you need go a single day without hearing someone accused of some kind of sexual impropriety at some point in the past. In some cases, quite a long ways back in the in the past. But the finger of accusation is pointed to these persons. It started with Harvey Weinstein, and it just came to keep snowballing. And, and most of us, actually, when we stop and are honest about it, have the experience of an inner voice pointing an accusing finger at us, the voice of our conscience. How can we ever hope to stand blameless before Christ and not have an accusing finger pointed at us? God's desire for us Is that in our waiting We will welcome the work of the Holy Spirit To make us blameless Meaning that at the final reckoning There can be no accusing finger Pointed in our direction Because Christ has taken care of it There are two parts to that There's there's the theological part Where our sins were erased by God's pardon But there's also the work of the Holy Spirit who wants to make us truly more blameless in our conduct, and our behavior as we partner with him. He will correct us and teach us. God himself does this for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 again. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. For he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning we we lit the hope candle on this first Sunday of Advent. And, And you heard us say that in the New Testament, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is confidence. It's the expectation of what is certain. It is living with the full conviction that God will keep his promises. With great hope and expectation, we look forward to the second coming of our Lord.